0: Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Into February 2022. Uh, what is happening with the two of you?
1: Everybody's, you know, trucking through uh, February, and I continue to be amazed that I feel like I've said this so many times here, but I, I continue to be amazed that like a year ago I couldn't get off of a couch. So mm-hmm. praise God that like I can now. So that's pretty amazing to me, honestly.
0: Praise God. Praise God. That's yeah. really good. Raj, what uh, I know that you've been on a little trip with some uh, friends of ours. Oh, yeah, someone,
2: yeah, a couple of- had an amazing uh, clergy retreat uh, with about seven uh, close friends who are all rectors of churches around the country, and we're all in our forties and you know um, have families and share similar convictions and we just enjoy enjoy each other's company. I've heard heard that both hosts of
0: uh, Same Old Song were there. They were. So yes,
2: Aaron was there and Jake was there and uh, Sarah's amazing husband Josh was there and your brother was there. and Yeah, we we just prayed for each other and shared what's going on in our lives and it was just a really genuine and wonderful time and um, this is a crazy life that we've signed up for. (laughs) So it's nice to be supported and have other people who are going through it as well, awesome. and then I will say also, Dave, because this is the last episode I think that will come out before I see you face to face. That I'm so excited for you to come to West Palm Beach. You know, oh, the weekend. No. Of what Saturday, February 26th and 27th. Um, so there's an so event. So yeah, I can't where wait I'm for gonna, you to come down I'm, here.
0: I'm speaking about secularity on a, on a Saturday night, and then preaching and teaching yes. at the church on Sunday.
2: Oh, nice. Yeah, so Holy Trinity Episcopal, Saturday, 5 p.m. HolyTrinityWPB.org is our church website, and you can go there for information on the talk, or you can just show up at 5 p.m. on uh, Saturday, uh, February 27th. And, and you can so see me give really RJ really fun.
0: this very cool gift that I got him in Tulsa, where we saw. I'm I, I mentioned last time I went to Leon Russell's studio, church studio, which is a converted church. And Leon Russell in the uh, early '70s uh, was the sort of maestro or band leader for the Mad Dogs and Englishman tour, which is an enormous tour that Joe Cocker did. Mm. And he wore these this funny baseball T-shirt the entire time that said "Holy Trinity" on it. I'm sure there's a reference to it. It's probably quite profane, but it's. Uh, RJ saw a picture of it and said, "I've got to get a T-shirt like that." And and then gotta I said, uh, "I said to him, you know what? I already got you one."
1: Oh. I can't wait. They they, they make uh, facsimiles
0: of them and sell them there in beautiful Tulsa, Oklahoma. That's
1: so cool.
0: Yeah, well, we're we're doing pretty well here in Charlottesville. I am just uh, finishing up the galleys of this book I've been working on for what feels like ages. And yesterday I got to write my acknowledgements. And um, let's just say the two of you got acknowledged. I won't say if it's in a nice way or. (laughs) <laughs> You're certainly your existence is a and presence in my life and uh uh is is very generously acknowledged I mm-hmm. like to think cuz I'm so grateful for the two of you. Aww.
2: I'd like to think we we keep your anthropology low just by being who that's we right. are. So Well actually yeah.
0: th- the, the precise acknowledgment is like thank you for never letting me take myself too seriously. So that's, uh, <laughs> I think that's his profound spiritual gift <laughs> that you've good, given me. good.
1: It's, I mean, that's, we're always saying at home, like, you know, the goal is to take the gospel seriously. And by doing that, take yourself a lot less seriously. So,
0: yes. that's always the goal. Well, we're going to start out with a very, I think, a, a great one that sounds kind of flippant at first and then gets really serious. This is uh, Megan O'Geeblin, who we've referenced many times before. Incredible writer, essayist, it has got a recent book out. She writes an advice column, like Sarah does. She writes an advice (laughs) column for Wired magazine. Wired magazine. So it's usually technologically related at first. And this is the question that she's responding to. Do good doorbell cams make good neighbors? Someone says, a concerned citizen writes, I haven't been burglarized or anything, but I'm feeling some pressure to get one of those ring surveillance systems for my front porch, the ones that record 24-7 video. Seems smart, but friends are telling me it's a bad look. Would it be unneighborly of me? Am I just an untrusting, untrustworthy gentrifier? Dear concerned citizen, Megan writes, it seems to me that you're asking not merely whether you should buy one of these systems, but more broadly what it means to be a good neighbor in -hmm. the age of mass surveillance, gentrification, and police violence. Considering the popularity of community Facebook pages and social platforms like Nextdoor, one might assume that a good neighbor is a kind of detective A citizen citizen who is willing to sniff out interlopers, collect evidence, and work in conjunction with law enforcement to keep the neighborhood safe. Because many faith traditions teach that we should love our neighbors, that we should love them just as we love ourselves. In the U.S., this tenet has long lived in tension with the virtues of individualism and the sanctity of private property and has often prompted that tepid good fences make good neighbors wisdom that Benjamin Franklin famously prescribed. Loving your neighbor as yourself, after all, implies that there's also virtue in self-loves, and so you could make the case that protecting your property and your own safety falls under that command's umbrella. I will point out, however, that this is not the only way to interpret the spiritual maxim of love thy neighbor as thyself. For quite a different perspective, you might look to Kierkegaard's works of love, one of the most uncompromising meditations on the injunction to love one's neighbor. True love for one's neighbor is a fundamentally disruptive practice that rules out petty questions of ownership. This is Kierkegaard.
1: So Ugh. good.
0: Thieves also disregard the distinction between mine and thine, Kierkegaard points out. And love love is the inverse of theft, a willingness to cheerfully surrender what belongs to you for the sake of your brother. If someone steals your coat, you should give them your shirt as well, or to update the analogy, if a porch pirate swipes your Amazon package... Throw in your FedEx parcel to boot. Yes. To truly love in this way, Kierkegaard argues, it's necessary to abandon the role of a criminal detective. Those servants of justice who track down guilt and crime. This is the impulse inherent in each of us to investigate the behavior of others, to unearth their sins, to ferret out clues of potential wrongdoing. Kierkegaard would not have bought into the contemporary self-care motto that well-being, like airplane oxygen masks, is a safeguard that you must secure for yourself before attending to others. In fact, he argued that the command to love one's neighbor as oneself does not entail a moral symmetry, but rather lies on a heightened inequality, as it demands that we spare ourselves the leniency that we must extend to others." It may be virtuous to respond to another's limitations with generosity, but we should not apply the same optimistic outlook towards ourselves. We should not presuppose that we are our best selves, that our motives are entirely pure. Instead, one should practice a vigilant self-doubt and treat oneself as a suspicious character, as he puts it. It is with one's own conscience, in other words, that the procedure of a criminal detective becomes virtuous.
1: So all I can think... Well, I think of several different things. A lot of <clears> in, some, Instagram
0: memes of, like, uh, these, these cams. I think it's been a real well, boom for Instagram. So
1: so the first thing that popped into my brain is actually that our neighborhood is full of these uh, ring doorknob things. Mm-hmm. And um, people will take pictures of, like, if a like a teenager, like, does the ding-dong ditch thing, you know, where you ring the doorbell and run. Mm-hmm. People will take a picture of that video surveillance and they will post it like in mom's groups on Facebook or like on next door and be like, do you know whose kid this is? Like they woke us up or whatever, which I'm always like, can't kids have fun anymore. I mean, like, this is why they're all depressed, you know? Like, let them ring your doorbell and run away. Like, chill out. I don't know. And they then, can't crank
2: call anymore because of caller ID. Yeah, like, what I mean, are they like, supposed they to do no is there anything left? left?
1: Yeah. I mean, I we we yeah. know statistically they're not having sex. You know what I mean? Like, just let them ring your doorbell. They're like, not getting I just, their driver's licenses. I know. You know?
0: Like, they're very, very stressed out.
1: That, yeah, this is the only joy they have. So <laughs> I I have that feeling about it. The other thing that comes to mind and um this is a, this is a, like a, literally like a 16 year old story. So I've probably told it on the podcast. But when uh, Hurricane Katrina hit and um, I went and lived at a relief camp. Joe Robinson uh, was the Episcopal priest who was running the camp. And at that point it was a month out from the hurricane. And so there was like just these massive donations, like think like Nike would pull up with an 18 wheeler and there would just be shoes, right? It would be that kind of like massive scale. And we had this big tent and people could just come and take what they needed. And, you know, interestingly, very strong color lines on the people who are coming and the people who are serving. So mostly people of color who are coming to get things, mostly white people who are coming to volunteer, mostly elderly white people from churches who are coming to volunteer. And they, the volunteers became very concerned that the people who are coming to take things were taking too much. They were taking Mm. more than they needed. It wasn't their size. Mm. What are they doing with it? Like everyone was becoming a detective, you know? And I, can totally like relate to that need to like know that people are using these things for good. And Joe Robinson got up one night at evening prayer and he said, we do not care what's happening to the stuff that people are taking. We let them take as much as they want. And I'll never forget this. He said, even if they're taking it and they're selling it on the streets, then they're getting the local economy going. And we love that for them. Mm. And I just think of of you know our need, and I I do I have that need too to like control and to know it's being used for good, and to, to police people really. Um, it also though I like the question that comes to mind when I I mean her writing on this is so great is what is it in ourselves right? like, that we're trying to keep in check or, like, mm. maybe... Interrogate
0: yourself, yeah.
1: Yeah, and maybe, like, if we're interrogating them loudly enough, then we don't have to deal with ourselves. I don't totally. know. It's, no, just, it's
0: 100%. An, yeah. It's
1: an interesting thing to me. But, yeah, I'm very anti, like, next door, anti... I don't know. I just... I think it keeps next us from... Next door is brutal. It is. It keeps us next from actually, just, like, knowing each Might be each the other. only thing worse than Twitter. Yeah. Oh, of yeah. Gosh, RJ, that's yes, that's very insightful. Yeah. <laughs> that, in I thought Twitter's the worst, but actually next door worse than Twitter. Yeah. Because
2: those people you actually know and right. you live near and they're like looking over your fence right. in your backyard being like, what are they doing? Right. Over there? Yeah. Or their fence isn't quite high enough. Or right. it's too high. And they're
1: like, here's the footage from my doorbell. <laughs> Look at what's happening. Um, yeah.
2: RJ, what do you think here? <laughs> Gosh, it brings so many things to mind. Um, the the thing about you know just being really suspicious of yourself, yeah. I think is just very sound advice. It reminds me of David Brooks has kind of been on fire mm. lately. I'm sure you guys saw that long piece he wrote about kind of um, people trying to save evangelicalism from itself. Did you see that in the New York Times? Yeah. But the one before, oh, before yeah. that was about sort of conservatism and about how he still considered himself a conservative. And and one of the, the, the virtues he said, of the, the one of the things that attracted him that he loved about conservatism is that one of the tenants is um, I could be wrong. I could always be wrong, That's uh-huh. to hold that in the back of your mind. And I you know, I don't know where I fall on the spectrum of the, I'm not here to talk about politics, but that's just a very, I think a very helpful, very Christian mm-hmm. thing also, right? We're, we're, we're sinners, we're selfish. Everything we do is a little bit tainted by fear and self-interest and a desire to control, and just to hold all our actions, our motivations, our desires with a very loose hand, knowing that they probably don't come from a good place. Mm-hmm. Um, I also we ha we don't have a ring, um, but we have an Arlo. You guys know what that is, which is similar, so it's not the doorbell, a but it is or? it's, it's no. <laughs> no I have two,
1: I, is that like a bloodhound or
2: no, I have two dogs that I don't like, which I've talked about <laughs> extensively on this podcast. Uh, Maisie and Dewey, which um anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but no, we have this camera system, you know, which which is is triggered by motion or by sound, which we actually have not set up in um in Florida because we feel safe, but we bought it in Houston because two things happened. One was some teenager broke into our house oh, and like stole us. a bunch of stuff and stole some bikes. and I actually, I they stole iPhones, which was also a huge mistake, and so I used to Find My iPhone to find them, and they got arrested. Um, although I don't think they ever got tried because the the uh, the hurricane hit, and now <laughs> I feel not so great about all that. Um, but my my wife felt very unsafe. Mm, you know, she sure. came home one day and the and the front door was wide open, and the window was bashed in, and there was stuff gone, and so and then someone also rung our doorbell at three a.m. one night, and I went out and like opened my door about six inches, and I was like, "Hello, can I help you?" and they were like is this and they gave some address that wasn't quite ours and i was like no that's not us and they then went next door and robbed our neighbor at gunpoint <laughs> you know so, oh no so after that i was like i'm getting a camera system yeah um but i don't i don't Whoa. know i i thought i think about um les misérables right mm-hmm. and the priest with jean valjean who who steals the candlesticks and he says oh you forgot you know, and they catch the man, and he says, "Well, you forgot these ones too. You're you should take cry. them all." Yeah, yeah, that's and the uh, that's the great scene. That's so. I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted, right? <laughs> it's, it's. Uh, I am kind of, I'm kind of a pacifist because I think Jesus was a pacifist but my wife always teases me she's like so you're telling me if someone broke into our home you wouldn't do anything about it and I'm like I don't know I don't know how this... I don't, I don't
1: you're I don't, like if you make know. cookies I would offer them cookies
2: I don't I care. don't know how to balance my love with I would happily give them need.
0: your iPhone. Let's, let's just
2: put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so these are hard things right yeah. how do I balance uh, the fact that you know, uh, like a lamb before it shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Yeah. You know, that yeah. Jesus and all the apostles apparently sort of went uh, silently and willingly to their own deaths, and yet I've also, I think, been called to protect this family, or maybe not, maybe not, maybe I haven't been called to protect this family that's been given to me, maybe I'm called to trust God that he will protect them. I don't know. Mm. Now you stirred that all up in me, so thanks for nothing, Dave. Well, it's a, it's a, <laughs> I, the- again,
0: my immediate association with Ring and these door cams is that... Uh- they've just provided so many funny uh, little clips on Instagram. Oh my That's gosh. Like, it's just, it's just, that is true. It's such a yes. wealth of ridiculousness and 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 funny, yes. funny things of people playing yeah. pranks on those coming up to them or people catching porch pirates, I guess they're called. I
1: mean, or just like, I have a friend who has like the worst cat and his name is Oreo and they have so much footage of her like running out like, damn it, Oreo! Like, you know, <laughs> because the cat like runs out of the door. Like, it is the highlight when I get an Oreo video.
0: Damn it, I will
2: say we <laughs> we still have the video clip. My oldest son of my oldest son coming home with a bunch of his high school buddies when they were like freshmen, and one of them had just kissed a girl for the first time, oh, and we like caught the video and audio of them kind of being like, "Oh man, how was it? Oh my gosh, tell me about it. You kissed a girl, woo! You know." And that's preserved for all time because our camera was set up at our yeah. front door.
0: What I love about this article is that Megan, in her, in her way, she, uh, she lays out almost like a philosophy of ministry and of Christianity. Mm. Because what, one of the things I didn't read is she says, we, if you want to use your detective skills, use them to conjecture why the person who you're observing on your camera might be doing something th- th- good. <laughs> Like, maybe that's a house sitter from across the street. Even if it's naive, you you sort of, you you Mr. Magoo it, you, um, you ascribe to them... You almost impute, you impute to you impute to the other person a charitable motive, or at least you think you use your imagination. I mean, this is a, an imagination thing that we have no imagination. I think in our culture today, you use your imagination um, to think about you have plenty of imagination for the for evil things. Well, we, we yes. think about why, good. or if they, if not they are the taking good. something, you think about why it is they might need something like that, or what what would have drawn yeah. them to this. You use your imagination in those regards. So you impute to other people a sort of a, a goodness while in. Interrogating yourself and never letting yourself off the hook for your own, um, you know, basic uh, need to control and police everyone around you. And uh, as Sarah, as you said, to sort of drown out sometimes your own self suspicions. So I think I'm, a, I'm a, one of... Um a very strong believer that there's something called healthy self suspicion. It's not self loathing. It's not shaming. Right. It's just sort of to to no. question myself. Called s-
2: honesty. But yeah.
0: but so you're gracious towards other people and towards yourself. You're slightly you know you you, you always um, you're suspicious in that you remain on the same. You never sort of put yourself above other people. And I think that that's actually a very healthy, beautiful way to live. And I do think yes. The bishop in uh, Les Mis, I mean, that is the great archetype of what it, of do we actually believe that that works or do we actually believe that that is important or is that just, it doesn't have to work, but I'm saying like, is there, no. is this, yeah, I love that. Do we care if it
2: works? <laughs> Did, well, is it, is it simply <laughs> do we believe that that's how God treats us? Is that that's how, we, how yeah. God treats us? You know, you've stolen from me. Let me give you more. Oh, you know, let me let geez, me love you. Let RJ, me show you it's mercy. Too
1: much.
0: RJ, good gosh.
2: Maybe <laughs> too we should early record again. Can, me, can my I, it's closing Dave? Up. My Dave, eyes are
0: watering. You
2: said, "I have a feeling I'm going to listen back to this. I'm going to be like, you sound manic again." No. But um, speaking to myself. But it reminds me, Dave, of something uh, Jamie and my just amazing, wonderful marriage therapist said to us, and Sarah, you know her as well. That when you're in your con- conflict with your spouse. Um, be like, listen to what they're saying and uh, about their pain and then get curious, Mm. get curious about your spouse, right? If you're going to be a detective, ask the question. So what was it that happened? Yeah. Why do you, what made it that, what is it that I said or did that made you feel that way? Yeah. You know, what did that, get, get curious. Yeah. Because obviously, when you're in a conflict with someone, Be a that's the last thing you want to do. Right. You just want to get super defensive. Accuse. Yeah. You just want to get defensive. You want to accuse. Right. Yep. And you want to talk and you want to shut down. Mm-hmm. But if you can get curious, um, you usually. It's just so healing, yeah. and then you can hear them, and you can put the, be empathetic and 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 vulnerable, and it creates uh, space for love, love to love, be re- yeah. rekindled. So, unfortunately,
0: yeah. the, I think that reason, especially once our emotions gets amped up. You know, I think I think it really is true that reason is really used to, uh, it's confirmatory rather than exploratory. But you're you're saying to to, mm. to use your reason, your your mental powers to explore rather than just confirm something you've already decided um, that. And that's yeah. actually, it's almost
1: like descriptive instead of prescriptive.
0: Aha, there you go. Oh, <laughs> just laying it all out this morning. Well, let's this next one really um, r- reminds me of R.J. Heyman. It's called It's Your Friends Who Uh-oh. Break Your Heart. It's your friends who break your heart by Jennifer Senior in the Atlantic. It's a long, long article. I think it might be the cover article, uh, and it's so we've talked about friendship quite a bit. I think friendship is has been a neglected category, uh, at least it's certainly in the social sciences, but also in various elements of theological, religious circles. But it's getting more and more. Um, uh, attention. And this is what she writes. She, now she's 52, and she says, I've aged out of the friendship collecting business. I should be in the friendship enjoying business, luxuriating in the relationships that survived as I put down roots. She says, You lose friends to marriage, to parenthood, to politics, even when you share the same politics. In fact, political obsessions are a big, under-discussed friendship ender in my view, and they seem to only deepen with age. You lose friends to success, to failure, to flukish strokes of good luck or ill luck. Envy, dear God, it's the mother of all unspeakables in a friendship, the Lulu of all shames. These life changes and upheavals don't just consume your friend's time and attention. They often reveal unseemly characterological truths about the people you love most, behaviors and traits you previously hadn't imagined possible. Those are brutal. The unhappy truth of the matter is that it is normal for friendships to fade, even under the best of circumstances. The real aberration is keeping them. The percentage mm. of Americans, by the way, I did not know this, who say they don't have a single close friend, has quadrupled since 1990, oh according to a survey. I, believe, I totally
2: a believe survey that. Survey Center
0: on American Life. One could argue that modern life conspires against friendship, even if it requires the bonds of friendship all the more. Most friendships die, according to the social psychologist Beverly Fair, not in pyrotechnics, but in a quiet gray dissolve. It's not that anything happens to either of you. It's just that things stop happening between you, and so you drift. Of course, it's the friendships with the more deliberate endings that torment. At best, those dead friendships merely hurt. At worst, they feel like personal failures, each one amounting to a little divorce. Because my midlife, you've invested enough in your relationships that every loss stings. Mazad Hojat, a social psychology professor at the University of Massachusetts once told me that people may say that friendship betrayals aren't as bad as romantic betrayals if they're presented with hypothetical scenarios on a questionnaire but that's not how they experience friendship betrayals in real life this doesn't surprise me I still have sense memories of how sickened I was when this friend told me I'd been relegated to a lower league my heart quickening, the blood thumping in my ears she goes on, she says um another social scientist told me that it's during
1: like, i'm just sorry i just have to think of, like how that anymore.
2: person justify <laughs> doing
1: that like it's like
0: yeah. speak the truth in love you know like i'm just like now, what you've been lowered league to your, to your tier mean... c now. You're, you're, you're triple a um <laughs> oh my uh, gosh. one social scientist laura cartinson cartinson told me during our chat that good friends are for many people a key source of unconditional positive regard Mm. A phrase I keep turning over and over in my head. Her observation perfectly echoed something that Benjamin Taylor said to me when I asked about his close friendship with author Philip Roth. What I wanted to know made their relationship work. Taylor said, Philip made me feel that my best self was my real self. I think that's what happens when friendships succeed. The person is giving back to you the feelings you wish you could give to yourself and seeing Uh. the person you wish to be in the world. That's another word for imputation in my world. Um, this is the last part that struck me as very, very germane. Paul Bloom, a psychology professor at the University of Toronto, told me that many years ago he taught a seminar at Yale about the seven deadly sins. Envy, he said dryly, was the one sin students never boasted about. He's right. With the exception of envy, all of the deadly sins can be pleasurable in some way. Rage can be righteous. Lust can be thrilling. Greed gets you all the good toys. But nothing feels good about envy. Nor is there any clear way to slake it. You can work out anger with boxing gloves, sate your gluttony by feasting on a cake, boast your way through cocktail hour, or sleep your way through lunch. But envy? What are you to do with that? Die of it, as the expression goes. A lot in this article. But friendships, middle age, what are they for, why do they end how do you guys view this? I mean, I, we, I know for a fact, we've talked about it before that we've all had friendships that have been sources of en- enormous comfort and ones that have yeah. ended in, you know, fiery flames.
1: I mean, I, I do. So one thing that I miss most about not having my mom here is that she was like a really good friend. She was a really good friend to me, uh, mm. especially as, as we both aged. I remember she said to me like the year before she died, like, I feel like we've, We finally have a friendship. You're finally old enough for us to have a friendship. And I never got to have this with my mother. And um, she's gone now. So I lost that pretty quickly. But um, it was a huge gift to me. But the other thing about my mom was that um, she told me what she thought about my friends. (laughs) And she was pretty reserved in that. Except there was a friend that she was like, she is not kind to you. And, and I, and I need to tell you that. And, and she, and she actually said, your brother and I have both observed, which I was like, oh my God, they're having conversations about me that she's not kind to you. And this friend and I had a falling out before I lost my parents. And, you know, I have to say that the, the article highlighting this bit about, um, your friend, like. Be imputing your best self to you and like loving you wholly and fully and being an encourager is I think excellent advice on friendship. And that wasn't really happening. And then of course I lost mom and dad and, and, um, and I kind of didn't go back to that friend. Like, I felt like that was kind of a piece of imparting wisdom that my mother gave me right before she died. Um, and I have been very intentional in the friendships that I have built since then um, to really be with people who who love me and want goodness for me. And, you know, I'm not saying these are people who are like – you know, like Sarah's personal cheerleader, but that I feel like there's a mutual love and um, a want for goodness for each other. Right. Mm. And I think that's not easy, especially in middle age. Um, I do think envy is like a real thing. It's a real poison, Mm. but I think the blessing of losing my parents means that I don't actually have time for that. Mm. I don't have time for relationships that feel like, Weirdly one-sided in, in that way. I don't know. I just I don't. And maybe that sounds really selfish, but um, well Sarah but she could...
0: she wrote wrote in another space that like there's of the of the issue of the sort of problem friend mm-hmm. that people's blood pressure tends to go up much higher in the presence of a problem friend, which yeah. some people would call a toxic friend. And um, yeah. then in I the... hate when we call people toxic. I know. But yeah. I don't either. But uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah than in in the presence of basically the person they really hate like
1: yeah oh my god, <laughs> person with whom I, they have an I,
0: adverse relationship yeah
1: because you're i think they're i mean at least it's in myself there's a sense of like trying to make them happy or feel okay whereas like it's just it, instead of just being in real relationships so yeah but the other thing i want to say and i this is a little corrective to the article but um i watched my mom make incredible friends well into her 60s Mm. um Mm. she and they were like my age like my mom like had all these like hip young friends that were at her like her yoga teacher is like my age and like they like took walks and hung out so i just i do think like there's always room for for friends Mm. like as we age i don't know i think that's really short-sighted to be like oh i i don't have the energy for to make real friends anymore so all just, of a sudden you know. the
0: golden girls uh, theme is just running through my head
1: yeah <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> you i mean totally queen. like i think of women that like i feel closer to as i age who i didn't know 10 years ago like i think of for example ginger oaks you know what i mean in charlottesville like who's a ginger i mean there's like these random people that i feel i don't know so i just i think you can always make friends
0: what do you think rj as a as a ex-friend of mine <laughs> <laughs> can't get enough. Yeah, Sorry.
2: No. Do it. Bring Bring it on. It's funny you mentioned Golden Girls because I was thinking, you know, the the television shows that everyone loves, um, you know, even if they're great or if they're not great, you know, Seinfeld and oh, Friends yeah. and How I Met Your Mother and Golden Girls and The Office and uh, Parks and Rec and Brooklyn, whatever it is, they're almost always about a group of friends. You know, uh, people who are in each other's lives, uh, sort of unconditionally and always there. Cheers, yeah, you know, same sort of thing. Just these incredible friendships, and yet I feel like the reason those shows are so popular is because so few people have that in their in their life, have that kind of community of people who are just there, no matter. What you know those those kind of um, deep friendships. I remember um, Fitz Allison talking about this once uh, at a Mockingbird conference, and he had been asked to give the like eulogy or remarks at some man's funeral, and this man had been very—I uh, was a very successful lawyer or something—and Fitz said, uh, "Why are you asking me to do that?" And they said, "Well, you were his best friend." Oh gosh. And Fitz said, um, "I barely knew the man." Mm. And how sad that is. Um, And I do wonder, like, not to make it too kind of gender specific, but I do think, is it harder for men? I don't know. Yeah. Um, Maybe just hard. Yeah, it's harder. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. You can say that. It's harder. Yeah.
0: Well, in I in middle mean, why aged. it was you such know, a that,
1: miracle that the seven of you all in the same, you're well, exactly, all in the same profession, exactly, you're all in your 40s, yes. and you it's go and, like, you hang out and pray together. Yes. Like, that's an actual documented miracle. Yeah, that, I, would, you know? I thought the same
2: thing, to be honest with you. Yeah. Well, what do they say? Uh, that the, the, the greatest miracle of Jesus' life that no one's talking about is he, he was a middle-aged man with 12 close friends. <laughs> 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 Which is totally true. Um. And I'm so I – w- I could almost cry now. Um, I'm so grateful for those guys and yet, you know, I wish I lived closer to them. Yeah. You know, uh, the reality is we – the, and this is true for a lot of people now in this modern age that we live where people move around and change jobs and change neighborhoods and change houses. Um but it's, it is, it's it's hard to hold on to friends. And I, I think I carry, I used to carry more guilt than I do about just not being a good friend because I think I'm like a lot of, maybe more guys are that I'm a little bit out of sight, out of mind. You know, it's it's tough to think about people if I don't see them on a regular basis. Um, but I'm also really blessed to have friend people that I really love and that really love me. And sometimes I'm embarrassed, actually. I'm like, I don't deserve mm. to have a friend like Jonathan Adams, for yeah. example, who I think is a such a good Friend. he's such a good friend, um, and and he he told me once he, he I think he said something like and I'll never forget it I never told him this um, about how his his vision of friendship is that if you can show up you do show up mm. and so like he surprised me for my 40th birthday in Houston even though he lived in Atlanta you know he flew in early in the, and he was here my he was here for my installation as as rector um, and I was just kind of blown away and I'm I'm I wish I was that kind of friend I'm, i I'm not that kind of friend but I want to be. You know, yeah. and I'm just grateful for the people that I think that, you're more of that—I've that heard, heard you that over the way.
0: years say this thing about being out of sight, out of mind, but, I mean, I, we haven't lived Ugh. in the same place for 12 years, and we're pretty pretty close touch, and I consider— you know, We are, um, yeah. I I've written, I feel like this is a subject that's pretty close to my heart and um, written a lot about it, especially as it relates to male friendship and the phenomenon of sort of sad clowns of sort of— there was that inc- incredible Saturday Night Live skit with Pete Davidson recently of like uh, uh, all these girls, uh, w- women dating men who don't have any, f- who, who who are relying on them too much for relational uh, sort of talking. To you, yeah, so they take them to totally. a man, man park oh, where like they yeah. go and talk about Marvel movies and stuff like yeah. that because they don't yeah. know how to make that. You lose the ability to make friends as a man, and I think a lot of it actually, frankly, does have to do with envy and competition. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I am. Uh, I, I remember it, it's very, it's very real, especially once people start getting second homes and, uh, and, and they're you or, can or tell on the
2: winning side of that. If you're on the winning side of that, it's like, how do I talk about my actual life with someone that I may not have as much as I do? It's embarrassing. Like it works both oh, ways. Oh, yeah, hundred percent. It can be embarrassment yeah. if you're sort of very successful. No,
0: I I, 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 it, it's it's um, you gravitate towards people who don't who mirror back to you the same choices you've made. I mean, um, yeah, uh, it's a just it's slightly a justification thing. It's slightly just to ease and comfort and like I don't want to have to ex- have to. Ex- yes. I want people that kind of understand me and understand the choices facing yeah. me and and um, it's awkward when I'm with my you know my single. Friend who's still living month to month and has different things. Like I, I love that person. I have a deeply, but and I'm not. I'm just speaking hypothetically here. I, I have noticed one of the things they talk. She talks about in the article is that there's oftentimes like a power differential in lots of friendships. Where this person always needed you, and you didn't quite need them. um, And that's kind of what made it work. And then when they Mm -hmm. got happy, you sort of didn't know what the relationship was about anymore, or vice versa. I was thinking about a friend of mine who was just going through a tough time uh, for a long time, and then now is going through a very happy time. And that just shifts the... The dy- dynamic. I think good friendships, really serious friendships, weather that. And the reason we, re- yeah. the reason while we do make new friends, the reason why I think in older age what I see is people return to their friends of their youth is because these are people you've experienced this somewhat of. A, there's a grace to it. Like they they loved you before you had these things. Yeah. Either your terrible humiliations and defeats, or your incredible accomplishments and pride. And usually it's some mixture of the two. But you feel that they. They knew you when, you know, athletes who have stick with the people that knew them when they were 13 rather than when they're a multi gazillionaire. I think that there's something really, because friendship is, it's an elective situation. I mean, it's, it's unlike a child, you know, or it's,
1: it's it, like the most elective it's the, situation. And, and for that you reason, know, it's not a marriage. Yeah. There's no, I, I mean, I, far be it for me to take life advice from Chelsea Handler, but. <laughs> Uh, One of my uh, very oldest, dearest friends um, sent me a little bit that that she had done, Chelsea Handler had done on a podcast about friendship and about long friendships and how sometimes returning to those people from childhood can be such a gift because maybe they weren't with you when you – and this friend was definitely not. We weren't really connected when I was in the life stage of like – Getting married and having babies, and we we actually lead incredibly different lives. Right, I'm an Episcopal priest in Texas. She is an actress in L. A. She's a devout Jew. We have these very different kind of lives. However, we had such deep connections as children. And part of what Chelsea Handler said that I thought was really insightful was maybe you weren't with each other through these major life things, but this person understands you. Yeah on a level, you know, like when I put up a video of our son singing, you know, the opening little bit for, uh, lessons and carols, uh, my friend Jill wrote, you know, from, from her phone in LA, of course he can sing cause growing up, she'd always seen me sing, you know? And it's just like that kind of deep knowing of each other. I mean, there's some sense in which you don't, gift. you
0: don't lots of parts of you just never change. I mean, you might, become yeah,
1: of course, sad. Yes. And in you a think way, that, or... the funny thing is you think they do. And then someone from like, way back is like, she'll say things like, but you always won things. Like, of course you're doing you're the death of your parents. Well, you know, like, and you're just like, Oh my God, <laughs> like, I'm so grateful for your voice in my life. Yeah. Like, how did I get this again? So,
0: and it's, it's a, it's a it's anyway friendship is a fascinating subject i i i credit you know the the way the the getting through the pandemic by the friends that i made uh through exercise here like it's just Uh, it's just that outlet and and it's so boxes right here i and um yeah i i there's 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 a lot to this i um And I think we can continue talking about it, but I want to move on to the next thing, which is uh, this amazing article that appeared last week or a couple weeks ago called How Trauma Became the Word of the Decade. How Trauma Became the Word of the Decade. Uh, This is by Lexi Pandel in Vox. She says some. Who, she says trauma is very real, uh, but yet some who study trauma say current cultural references to the word have become a mess of tongue-in-cheek and casual mentions, mixed with serious confessions and interrogations of the past, of definitional misunderstandings and the absurd and the trivial and the profound and the sincere. Trauma, says Michael Shearinga, a medical doctor at Tulane University, is one of those words that can mean anything. I was stuck in traffic. That was traumatic. My football team lost. That was traumatic. That's the way it's used in our culture. Although you know, note that it's it's taken from the Greek word uh, "wound" for wound. Mm-hmm. In by the 1990s, terms such as cultural trauma, collective trauma, historical trauma, intergenerational trauma were on the rise, particularly in connection to genocide, enslavement, and war. The expansion of the term, she she says, basically this is a, actually a, a beautiful thing to see that stuff from the past is having it is very much working its way out in the in the present. Which says, the expansion of the term had an unforeseen side effect. Trauma started to become an easy go-to narrative for all mental health challenges. The trauma narrative became a very easy one to adopt, even for people who didn't have what we would call a lot of trauma. It has currency, says Janice Whitlock, a research scientist at Cornell. Uh, It has currency so people broker in it. One of my participants talked specifically. This is Janice Whitlock speaking. One of the participants in my recent study talked specifically about how she perceived a hierarchy of trauma. There was a sense. There was a sense of the worse your trauma is, the more justified your mental health challenges. By relying on trauma to understand our modern lives, perhaps we're undercutting the very real impacts of stress and overwhelm. We're flattening all hardships, conflating the horrific and life-shattering with the merely unpleasant. What of awareness, though? Doesn't increased visibility push the traumatized to seek help? Perhaps. It does mean in some capacity people are aware that an experience can have negative consequences beyond just feeling bad in the moment. Though it also might be unhealthy for those suffering from trauma to memeify their experiences. One expert says, you're no longer processing it, you're just advertising it. Tightening the definition of trauma doesn't take anything away from terrible personal experiences, the horrors of history, or the difficulty of being alive within our current social structures. It doesn't limit our capacity for empathy or undercut the need to recover from tragedy, crises, or challenges. It doesn't ignore the truth of violence and existential horror. Though it does recognize that there can be consequences without there necessarily being trauma. I mean, partly this is interesting to me because it just it highlights the way that we ironically use, lean on our wounds, that which hurts us, to feel better about ourselves. Um, and yet I always wonder when we talk about the expansion of the word trauma, uh, we want to reserve it for these terrible, terrible things that have happened and not for everyday occurrences. I, 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 I get that, um, but I also wonder if it, if the real truth is simply that Everyone is traumatized. Like it's, it's just um, trauma is another word for woundedness. Is another word for being alive. Like um, to, the walking wounded is is something that I you know uh, see uh, around me. I, I I I know the dangers. And Sarah, you've certainly talked about this in past episodes of of, of com- comparative trauma and competitive trauma even. And, and I see that especially you know in certain cultural discourses. And yet. Just because everyone, just because something is widespread, doesn't make it less acute. You know. Um, uh, anyway, I, I'm I'm interested to see, hear what you guys think because this is such a. I do hear this word all the time, and I time. I use it all the time, and I yeah, I'm, I'm recognizing. It's like, is was that just an awful thing that happened, or was that truly traumatizing? Was that wounding in a way that's permanent and sort of, um. But of course, I also have a theology that tells me that, uh, you, that Jesus is a wounded healer, um, and that out of your wounds, that's where your your power is. Your the, the, the That's where the, uh, the grace often flows, that the light, the, those wounds are where the light gets in, all that theology of the cross.
2: In weakness, my power is made perfect.
0: Yeah, well, RJ, let's what's, what's hear from you.
2: It feels like a cry for mercy, you know, that I think we live... Uh, in a very unmerciful culture where it doesn't, you're, you know, I think about what we talked about last week with, you know, Sarah living in the Delta and agricultural settings where there are times of, there's times where things grow and there's times where things get harvested and there's a time when things lo- lay fallow, when life lays fallow and how that's not something that you're never allowed to lay fallow. You always have to be going, you always have to. You know, just it doesn't matter what you've been through. Just you have to go, 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 go. And it reminds me also of the article we read maybe a year ago about the nervous breakdown. You know, how it used to be okay to have a nervous breakdown and just kind of check out from life for um, a few months at a time and how it was just very vague. It it wasn't specific. Um, And it doesn't seem like it's okay to do that anymore. And so maybe the only way that people can find... The mercy and the rest that they're looking for is by voicing this pain that they have and and um, having other people kind of uh, hear that or affirm that because as we also know there is something incredibly healing about just being heard. Yeah, you know that when you when you've when you've suffered something when you've been through something and it's running through your mind and and you've been dealing with it for weeks or months or years just to be able to verbalize that to someone else who will listen to you. And, and sort of love you in that way, to allow you to vent, to sort of you know vomit your, your trauma, your pain onto them. suddenly you feel a little bit better. Um, and so maybe that's where this is coming from, is people just needing to be needing to be heard um, and not feeling like there's really a space in, in their lives um, to process this mm. um, or to, to find a little to find rest. People are looking for rest and for mercy. So I don't. I, and of course, there's also, I don't know, self-justification. Look at me. I'm important. My pain is bigger than your pain. Or, I don't know. There's always comparison games. Um, but I do think people carry a lot of mm. pain. What do you think? And loneliness. And it's been. Yeah, yeah Sarah. Where where where? What are you with? This? Sarah, what do you think?
0: Oh,
1: I don't want to sound like an asshat. Um, <laughs> I do wonder with the word trauma, and also I would also want PTSD in here. Um, how it affects our people who have served in the military and war uh when we are like very casually like trauma i have ptsd you know um and maybe that's just because i have family you know like i've always had generations of family who've served and so i always think of them um i you know honestly it also makes me this is the other reason i feel guilty saying this out loud but it also makes me think of that book I've talked about here the um the other side of sadness Mm. uh by George Bonanno because he actually talks about like he there's a lot of research about like a society post 9-11 or um I think there's a um some sort of Oh gosh, I'm not going to get it right. Some sort of like atomic meltdown, something else that happened, you know, and they study the populations like a month out, six weeks out. And what they see is like people actually aren't that traumatized, um, that people are actually incredibly resilient mm-hmm. and that there is woundedness there, but it, uh, in a classical definition of, of trauma in sort of the psychological realm, that's not the right word. Um, yeah i mean i guess the word trauma makes me a little uncomfortable i'll be honest like to use it casually um and i i and maybe that's judgmental but i just you know when i and and i know comparative suffering and all that but like when i think about children who are raised in traumatizing households like that's very different than me sitting in traffic you know and we have this sort of cultural tendency right now to take, and maybe we've always had it. I don't know. I don't know linguistics, but we take words that have a lot of meaning and then we make them funny. And I'm, I don't, I don't know what that's about. Mm. I mean, it kind of, I mean, this is, it reminds me a little bit of like the word blessed, Mm -hmm. Like how people say that they're blessed, you know, like in a funny, ironic way. But also, and I hate when people do this. Uh, when and it's a very southern thing, but when people think someone is stupid or or whatever, they think poorly of someone, and they're like, "Oh, bless!" Like I i don't like that at all and so there's like a weird thing for me with the with words that get misused and it's probably just me like being like a pent-up english teacher um but but and i just get to justify it by being self-righteous about not using the word trauma i mean i've certainly used the word right
0: i i remember i think i forget if we talked about it here but uh esther perel the the therapist was was Mm -hmm. saying that um Uh, The the use of words like trauma is actually an indication of the tyranny of of positivity in our culture, that the only way to talk about negative emotions or negative experiences is to pathologize them Mm -hmm. using words like trauma is a medical term. And um, (laughs) I can't just say I'm inexplicably depressed. I have to say that I'm uh, or I can say I'm clinically depressed or I can say that I'm, you know, uh, Pathologically depressed, or you you can say, um, you can say I'm, I didn't just have a tough childhood. You say I was trauma. It's it's trauma, and so right. in that sense, right. I think it is. It can be seen as an indication, certainly as an invitation to compassion. But it's a it's an it's it's not seen as normal to be regretful uh a person yeah sad
1: yeah it's like who had a happy it's, child it's aberrant
0: it's, it's aberrant <laughs> to have had a to have a, had a wounding experience and so yeah. the only way we can get away with it the only way people won't question it is to say well that's it's trauma it's just it's, it's, it's a permission thing I think yeah um, and there is yeah. semantics to it which is v-
1: and there's nothing wrong with I mean that's I you know like people need that I don't mean to take that away but it is it's a word that carries more weight for me than it
0: used to I right think. no sure because we don't want to you don't want to People feel self-conscious when they're talking about their pain. Oh, I'm no. using the wrong words for it now. It, you know, no, am I going to be no. judged for it? But because it, it's a way of actually trying not to be judged for it. Right. I think because oh, because as RJ says, so, there's so little mercy. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. Yeah. RJ, I was talking with a friend uh, recently who had listened to the Mars Hill podcast, which we've referenced a little bit,
1: and Dave was um, on. Okay.
2: And Dave was on <laughs> okay. exactly. Yeah. Kind, Modest, of, a, kind pod, of a big deal. Podcast featured kind Dave Zoll. You are kind of a big deal. <laughs> um, kind of.
1: Okay. But
2: <laughs> this friend, this friend had had worked in a similarly dysfunctional church mm-hmm. and been wounded and. He was saying it. It, I think, you know, he used the phrase PTSD. He was like, "Listen to Mars Hill; like it gave me a little PTSD about, or brought up memories of what I'd been through." And it, I, I recognize myself, like, getting sad and angry, and my temperature rising just as I'm hearing a, a story very similar to mine. Um, but then he he was sharing that with an older priest, kind of a mentor friend of his, who actually had di- had been a Vietnam vet and had diagnosable PTSD from Vietnam and he caught himself using the term PTSD because he's like oh wait but i i know it's not really and i you know he felt bad he's like i it's not like i have PTSD like mm-hmm. you know you do and this older priest vietnam vet friend said no 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 don't do that oh. like you absolutely have PTSD Gosh. like i know what you i know what you went through i know the pain that that was and and what that did to you and so it's a completely appropriate you to use that the term you forgot the candlesticks mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's like, beautiful. And maybe maybe that older Fred was just trying to make him feel but good. Like, I still, don't know. Who cares? If you want to, like, but but I wonder how many I mean how many of us do have that thing that happened in our lives. Yeah. That's just really hard to get yeah. over, yeah. and you all and you're always thinking about it, and you recognize. Uh, I get another word. You know, it's big in our culture right now. You know how you get triggered oh, when someone sure. says something or does yeah. something, or you hear a story, and suddenly you're like, "Why am I so angry? Yeah. Why am I so anxious? Why am I so sad? Why can I? Why am I not sleeping as well as I used to? And if 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 that's what you're going through, then I don't know. Trauma might not be a bad. Word. I mean, I know yeah. what you about triv- Trivializing it, but I do think a lot of people carry well, certainly the
0: things around like the, that. The church has genuinely not just in the, not just in a sort of a, oh they had a bad youth group experience. They've had they, the church people have had very traumatic experiences and it doesn't always look like actual you know child abuse or something like that it it, it is I have I noticed the same thing honestly
1: it's just like a really really destructive sermon I mean like it really it's funny people are so vulnerable in the space of church it doesn't take much to traumatize people well
2: it goes back to the friendship thing you know we build these friendships in churches either real or implied and then when someone at church hurts us it it feels like a a massive betrayal yeah you know, Absolutely. you open yourself up. Yes. You know, you think you have the. But you, people anyway. might yeah. might think, oh, it's it's
0: trauma, it's 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 patronizing to dismiss um, the enormous uh, criticism or deconstruction uh, that in in the relation that that results or is on the other side of these terrible church dramas and religious, mm-hmm. uh, you know, scandals. But the truth is. Um, it, it, it does help me, compassion, as someone who is still engaged in Christian work and very much views the gospel as good news, it helps me to say, you know what? These are some. This is people who are experiencing genuine trauma. Like that's, mm-hmm. I, I can hear. I can I can hear their intellectual arguments. I can hear they're they're trotting out their evidence. But what I'm all really hearing is a tr- lot of trauma and that, or a lot yeah. of pain. Let me just put it that way. Yeah. A lot of pain that's not doesn't seem to really go anywhere. But there was there's a really. Uh, I, I want to end with something where we saw a a, a a different or a very Christian way of looking at yes. trauma. And this was from Stephen Colbert. This is a piece. This is a clip that's been passed all over the internet. Uh, Dua Lipa, this English singer, uh, decided to turn the tables on Colbert.
1: I love Dua Lipa. It's
0: funny, you know. It's like uh, Colbert, you know, especially after he stopped the Colbert Report. he's, He's 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 gotten he's. There's been times where you're like, oh, I miss the old Colbert. Like he's mm. he's so uh, partisan and so one note sometimes. But then he'll every few months he drops some insane bomb of every profundity. few months
1: he turns out he's a Christian. yeah like a huge
0: <laughs> um, and just he this is such a gift that he gave the yeah. entire world and uh, especially those of us who care about what it what it looks like to be a witness or at least a presence in the in the public square. So do Lipa... Uh, turns the tables on him and she says, I think something that your viewers really connect with in your comedy and your hosting skills, especially in the past few years, is how open and honest and authentic you are about the role your faith plays in your life. Do uh, your faith and your comedy ever overlap and does one ever win out? Now, Colbert speaks so quickly that I'm going to read what he says a little more slowly. He says, I think ultimately all of us being mortal, the faith will win out in the end. But I certainly hope when I get to heaven, Jesus has a sense of humor. But I'll say this, someone was asking me early about what I, and this relates to faith because my faith is involved, I'm a Christian and a Catholic, and it's always connected to the idea of love and sacrifice being somewhat related and giving yourself to other people and that death is not defeat, if you could see where I'm getting at there. Someone was asking me earlier, what movie did I enjoy this year? And I said I really liked Belfast, which is Kenneth Branagh's story of his childhood. And one of the reasons I love it is I'm Irish, Irish Irish-American, and it's such an Irish movie. And I think this is also a Catholic thing, because it's funny and it's sad, and it's funny about being sad, in the same way that sadness is like a little bit of an emotional death, but not a defeat, if you can find a way to laugh about it. Because the laughter keeps you from having fear of it, and fear is the thing that keeps you turning to evil devices to save you from the sadness. As Robert Hayden said, we must not be frightened or cajoled into accepting evil as our deliverance from evil. We must keep struggling to maintain our humanity, though monsters of abstraction threaten and police us. So if there's some relationship between my faith and my comedy, it's that no matter what happens, you are never defeated. You must understand and see this in the light of eternity and find some way to love and laugh with each other. And Dua Lipa says, ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Colbert. And he just rattles this off, by the way, about three times faster. It's crazy.
2: Unbelievable. It's crazy. It's
0: It's it's crazy. crazy. Well, uh, my response was just like, thank you. Stephen and how this was just at at his thank you Jesus thank you Jesus (laughs) at his fingertips to say that uh,
1: I mean clearly he thinks about this all the time yes
0: to acknowledge the deep sadness and pain of life and yet it is not the final word that's what he's saying anyway
2: what do you guys think a small death but not a sadness is a small is like a small death but it's not a defeat and also how we evil cannot be the answer to evil um and that's so powerful because even just all the ways that we try to mitigate our sadness you know that we from you know picking up your phone to having one too many drinks to yelling at your kids to you know just trying to find a a, a moment of relief from the unrelenting <laughs> sadness you know and him him being like that can't be the answer you know better better to laugh at yourself and to laugh at the world and to laugh you know because you know it's not the mm. end um that there's something more and greater and and uh someone out there who loves you looking out for you. It's so good. It's unbelievable. Sarah, you you always say just, something. I just
1: like I can't it's just it's just so good. I mean, and he's an expert on this, right? Like he lost his father and his siblings in a plane crash and he was little. Like he's it's just like he he has lived this life and like I just the thing about like not fixing our evil with evil is such a has been such a profound theme in my life this year like it's just been uh, it's been the greatest literally the greatest gift of my faith like Mm. because I think I really would have gone to a much darker much angrier place Mm. and like the reality is that like that's just not going to serve me at all and like going to be horrible for like my children and my husband and me you know and all, like all I keep thinking of is like, I'm sorry, this whole episode is about the accident. It's such on my brain right now. But my aunt, we are at my parents' house, my whole family had gathered just such beauty and love in their home. And my aunt and I were in the back bedroom, and she's trying to like tell me, it's like they were so careful about like how much I would know about the accident. Mm. And how much they would keep from me, my family, because they just knew it would be so hard, right? And there was, like, a, de- a deep sense of, like, specifically protecting me. Like, even my brother was like, we have to protect Sierra. Like, this is a lot for her. She's got kids she's raising, right? And my aunt is back in the bedroom. And she's trying to talk me through, like, what we know about their last moments. And I have this uncle who would not listen to this podcast. So I'm not worried about it. Uncle Donnie who is a little kooky and he loves gadgets and he kept turning on the robot vacuum and it just kept going down the hallway with the wooden floors and like running into the door where my aunt Becky is like trying to have this like, really sad hard conversation with me and it's so funny and she's like damn it donnie you know like and it just is like like the humor was what saved us all it saved me but it was like totally it would feel like we were drowning and then the laughter would just It would it's you were almost like a whale, right? You would be underwater, 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 and then it would like let you come up for air for a minute and you think, Okay, I can go back down. Like that's what the humor was. It was so life giving, um, you know.
0: So I just that is um it's, that is such a funny <sighs> image, uh, Sarah. I don't know yeah.
2: what. Which... Damn it, Donny. <laughs> Donnie is, is just a big back Lebowski. There. <laughs>
1: like, um, I mean Donny. I've seen Donny drive around the town of Rosedale before on a lawnmower, as though most people drive around on golf carts. Like he's one of my favorite people. So um, <laughs> it amazing. reminds me yeah. a little bit
0: of like when you when the, the, people delve into the tradition of, of Jewish comedy. Uh, because it's that mm, oh, is like yeah. the basically the strongest mm. comedic tradition. Yes. Um it sounds a bit like the Irish version here, but there's yeah. a, there we always say our humor is what got us through. Um and so many of my favorite um you know things that I laugh about the most basically most emanate from Larry David. I just I mean his in <laughs> and, and Seinfeld and the whole that whole universe of things I just can't it has it, it brought me so much joy. And one of the things they're doing is they're both exposed, they constantly are exposing the low anthropology, the ridiculousness of human beings, and then they're laughing at it. Now, they may not s- understand it in this sort of like uh, metaphysical way that that uh, Colbert is saying, like, we are not defeated. But, but you know, we're part of the same tradition. Um and that, that humor as a way of coping i think it's one of i know it can be a way to deflect it can be a way to sort of ignore trauma but it can also be a way uh, to state that my trauma my wounds my sadness does not have the final say and uh, to to laugh to it is a is a release valve it's also sort of a, a hilarity you know you could say that god has the last laugh but I one of the things I think
1: deflective humor is not funny.
0: Deflective humor is not funny, and and I don't.
1: I think you can tell the difference. I think misanthropic
0: like, humor can be fun, like when you're really meanly making fun of someone. I think it, yes, it can be funny, but ultimately it doesn't have this nowhere, nothing of this sort of redemptive quality to it. I I like to think that um, if there's anything different about Christian comedy, it would be that you're never placing yourself above. Auden, I think, says that no one is immune from comic exposure. That we're all Mm. sort uh, of—we're not laughing at people; we're sort of laughing with them. I think that that's a a powerful, powerful thing. It's one of the things I always love about Robert Capon—is he always seems to be—he emphasizes humor as a as an attribute of Uh. of the sort of playful spirit-filled. Life, and you know, one of the great things about humor is that it's often ref- or laughter at least it's reflexive, it's not calculated, it's um, it right. drags you into the moment, it t- takes you, um, you're not in control of it. And I think that there's something d- deeply uh, gracious about that. Um, it it, it 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 overwhelms you in a way, it's not you're not cooperating with humor. Uh, I mean, people would say, Oh, don't laugh at that, you know, but that's. They're only saying that because you are laughing at something that maybe you shouldn't laugh at. I mean, it's a
1: <laughs> They're saying that because it's, it's touching
0: you, you yeah. where you actually are, not like who you think you should be or what you think yeah. is supposed to be funny. This is why, I mean, I think uh, humor is a great subject and 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 for Colbert to take humor seriously in this way is a uh, and to, and to point out where what allows it not to be nihilism, but for Colbert to say no, it's like it's a way of saying that Sadness, if the finality, tragedy is not uh, the last, uh, the final thing. Ho- uh, to laugh is an act of hope. Um, I don't know. That That's where my mind went with it. I know we're...
2: I think that's... It's also why uh, I think we as Christians, you know, some Christians are very nervous about Halloween, oh, yeah. but I don't think we need to be because it's, it's you know, it's all Hallow's Eve. It's on the the, the, the day before All Saints Day when we celebrate that, you know, uh, by the grace of God, we're we're saints and we'll enjoy life together forever with him, but we're going to die, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that's going to happen and, and life can be scary, but we can kind of have fun with it a little bit and kind of, you know, uh, laugh at the principalities and powers or... Or whatever. Mm. Um, and and you know, Colbert just it made me think of that passage in Peter, uh I can't remember if first or second Peter, where he says, Always be prepared to give an answer for those who, who ask about the hope that is within mm-hmm. you. Um, but do so with gentleness and keeping a clear conscience so that you you cause no offense. Um, that he was and that's a little too you know, I don't think he thought he was gonna get that question. I don't think he was prepared, but it, but it, it's so clear that his life um, has and it has prepared him, his faith has prepared him. Yeah. And and then also what Jesus says to the disciples, you know, when they drag you before the courts to, to give an answer, um, don't worry, because the Spirit will give you the words to say at that moment. And it was just so clear, crystal, 100% clear that the Holy Spirit was talking through Stephen Colbert at that moment, you know, to her and to kind of all of us. I mean light? You, you, it just, was just a it was a miracle. It was a miracle. It
1: was. I love the way you say the word miracle. Um
2: <laughs> how do I say miracle? Miracle. Miracle Miracle. A miracle. Um Miracle I just always, I, right. I have
1: to say, like, I feel like I have my memo on the podcast sometimes because you just throw out those New Testament verses, and I am like, "Oh my!" We gotta gosh. keep us
2: on the Bible. Someone's a little bit. Come on. I just, we, you know, I love it's it. It's beautiful. Well, bit. let's end. Let's it end there. Beautiful. This is a,
0: a wonderful, wonderful, yeah. uh, um, uh, you know, reminder. I think. Uh, thank, thank, yeah. praise, praise God for that little exchange and the laugh at your trauma. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. Well, you find something funny. We'll talk to you both of you guys in a few weeks. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. God bless you both. Keep on laughing. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com, and we'd always love to hear from you at info@embird.com. Audio production for the mocking cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time.